Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Our guest today is sometimes referred to as one of the most prolific women producers in the film industry but she's actually one of the most prolific producers, period. Linda Obst, class of 72, is the producer of such groundbreaking films as The Fisher King, Contact, Sleepless in Seattle, and Interstellar, among many, many more. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. It's good to have you with us here in cyberspace. (laughs) (laughs) Very Um, reassuring to be in cyberspace. (laughs) It is, yeah. So while we're talking about that, uh, these are pretty challenging times for for a lot of people, but the film industry, it seems in particular in some ways, um, how are you adjusting professionally and personally to all of this? Well, you're watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, the, the, our listeners can't see it, can't see, but uh, we're, we can see. We're all on Zoom. You can describe it to them. This is my work in the movie business during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I sit at my desk in my home, and I talk on Zoom. And then that Zoom is finished, and I go <laughs> walk around my house for two minutes, or maybe I walk out to the patio, and then I come back, and then there's another Zoom. Yeah. And then sometimes I talk to my staff for five minutes, and we do a director's list or a writer's list, and then we have another Zoom. <laughs> and um, that's sort of how it goes. What used to be a meeting is now a Zoom. Yeah. So it's that old song, Who's Zooming Who? <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Right now, as we speak, they're trying to figure out, um, you know, how production's going to start up. So there are many shows. My son, in fact, had shows that were shooting as the pandemic shut down, shut us all down. I did not. So my life is less dramatically affected. I was in development. Yeah. He was in production on three things. Oh so, um, so he's in the middle of these um, questions of some shows are shut down and they don't come back. Some shows are shut down and they don't come back for last year's episodes, but they'll come back for this week, this year's episodes, which means they're going into a writer's room and they have time to figure out um, how to shoot. That's why they're not going back to production right now. It's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Movies yeah. have to be finished as mm-hmm. opposed to television shows. So movies are figuring out how are we going to do this? What are the logistics of this? Um, and some shows were just canceled. So it was like, um, you know, that game of um, musical chairs, right? And the music yeah. stopped and wherever you were standing, <laughs> Something terrible happened. And you hope there was a chair. And you hope there was a chair. <laughs> and something happened wherever you were standing or sitting. Yep. Linda, you grew up in the East Coast. Can you tell us a bit of how you were like a, as, as, as a child? Yeah, that was my favorite question that you asked me. No one ever asks that. I grew up in Westchester outside of the city. And um, I like to think of myself as a city kid because I was always running away to Greenwich Village um, uh, when no one was looking with my girlfriends. Um, so I would say I was a bit of a, uh, a nightmare. I was a parent's <laughs> nightmare. I was noisy, um, relentlessly, hor- horrifically curious, a bit of a disruptor. <laughs> um, and I, I think um, I had a terrific time, I must say, but I would not have wanted to be my mother. <laughs> <laughs> terrific qualities in an adult. <laughs> yeah, well, mother, the, famous, the famous parent's curse is, may you have a child just like you. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the fixer. <laughs> He's now a big manager. He's the one who's... Who had all those shows shooting? Yeah. So, yes, it gave me a, quite a time as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that parents' curse always works. <laughs> it does. 
<laughs> and he can pass it on down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, how did you find your way to Pomona? Well, you know, it was um, that era that you all have heard about, but you probably weren't alive for the late 60s and early 70s. Hey, I was there. <laughs> really? We're, we're contemporaries. <laughs> so I took a year off, um, 19, the end of 1968, the beginning of 1969, and explored the existential whatever, the great <laughs> unknown. And, um, and I had a really fun time. And I said, I think I'm going to go back to school. And in fact, my mother said something to me. She said, why don't you just take one philosophy class? And then if you don't want to go back to school, I'll believe you. <laughs> it was very, very telling of her. Yeah. So um, I really wanted to see California. I had really had it with the East Coast. Um, I applied to Pitzer. I went there. I got in. I had no idea about it other than I could take a lot of different courses. I got very involved in politics my first year there. It was Kent State. Oh, yeah. And um, it was a very political year. I got very, uh, I was very radicalized and got very involved in the student movement in Claremont. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the student movement, I discovered philosophy. And I took all my courses at Pomona in philosophy. So something really strange was happening to me because this radical that I was, was turning into a person who wanted to have long arguments about the good life. <laughs> <laughs> they sent me to men's prison in Chino to teach the prisoners about Marx and Lenin. And then all I wanted to teach the prisoners was about going to college. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I found myself becoming less and less radical mm -hmm. in terms of like, I didn't want to tell these guys that, that when they got out of Chino, there was going to be a revolution for them to join. Yeah. I thought that was really... Um, irresponsible mm -hmm. of me to prepare them for a revolution that wasn't really going to happen, which is what they wanted me to tell them. Of course. Mm -hmm. So I prepped them instead for vocabulary, like dialectic. <laughs> 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 did lots of Martin Nagel um, vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, they loved it, but I suddenly realized that my goal was to get them to school Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. I was subversively a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> Not the radical mm -hmm. I thought I was. Mm -hmm. And then, yep. in fact, what I really was was a person who wanted to teach these guys philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then I became more and more of this philosophy student. And I transferred to Pomona. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you knew, the next thing I knew, I was studying hardcore logic, um, a little bit of phenomenology and existentialism, but I really went into Anglo-American philosophy big time mm -hmm. and just fell in love with thinking. Mm -hmm. And I remembered something really interesting happened to me at Pomona. Everything interesting happened to me at Pomona, which is why I fell in love with it. But <laughs> we had this big sit-in, this teach-in, with the ROTC. And we had done this big march all around uh, Claremont. And we ended up outside the ROTC building. And they were supposedly our enemies. Yeah. And so these guys from ROTC, they were the um, guys who wanted to grow up and be in the army. And also the conservative men's um, philosophy group from CMC <laughs> came out to debate with us about our sit-in mm -hmm. 
And so I started to debate with these guys and I brought some of my team, my sort of SDS group. And the next thing I knew, I was debating with the CMC reactionaries about the nature of the good life in Aristotle. (laughs) And I, we just adored each other. (laughs) And they couldn't believe that I wanted to discuss the nature of the good life in Aristotle and ethics. And I couldn't believe they wanted to discuss that. Mm-hmm. And then there was no more sit-in. <laughs> and everybody just sat around having this great big philosophical conversation. Yeah. Hey, that's what philosophy is supposed to do, right? <laughs> and it did. It really, I mean, I just turned into a really lousy radical. But it was a great teaching, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. People found themselves actually communicating, which I think has become for me, I think it's very much what I try to do in my movies. Mm-hmm. You know, is find this middle ground somehow. Do you know this? It's not a middle ground like a middle position, but just a point at which people can communicate, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, a non ideological point. Anyway, it was a revelatory moment at Pomona. I became completely less political and just immersed myself in philosophy, took nothing but philosophy and, and tutorials and Joyce. And that was the thing about Pomona then. I transferred, I, I fell in love with it. I became the head of the philosophy club. I, 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 I just became devoted to the academics there and spent three years on campus after that. Um, being a nerd, the happiest nerd that you could imagine. I went to graduate school in philosophy after. Mm-hmm. Linda, you mentioned that your mother suggested you to take philosophy. Had you ex- already expressed some interest in philosophy or did she know something that you didn't know? I think she knew something I didn't know. I think um, if I had ever been exposed to it before, I had always been interested, but I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. She was. She had studied with Sidney Hook at NYU. So, um, and I think she and I had had some good conversations. I think she knew I would love it, but I didn't really know what the curriculum was going to be. And um, it was the, what do they say? It's the disease for which it pretends to be the cure, right? It, the, it, it was what my mind needed mm-hmm. to get out of a fever. Gotcha. And it taught me how to think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, one of your questions was, it's, this, it's the field that your, your parents always say, oh, my God, what are you going to do with yourself? Mm-hmm. How are you going to get a job? Do you mm-hmm. know? What is the, and, and at, for a while, I did think I was going to be a professor. That sort of was what I was aiming for. But the truth is it trains your mind to think. And I don't think there's a day that I don't use it in my yeah. story, in breaking down story, mm-hmm. in figuring out what's interesting to make a movie about, mm-hmm. in, in, in going down rabbit holes to figure out what what is ethically interesting that I can extrapolate into a sci-fi piece or a genre piece that has richness and texture enough to be a tale, do you know Mm -hmm. what it's telling? Mm -hmm. I think it's been, I don't think any other field would have given me as much, but it's not in terms of craft, it's in terms of sort of radiocination, you know. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, between between uh, uh, the philosophy uh, study and movie making, there was a career in journalism, um, which also seems to fit into that picture you were just talking about pretty well. But uh, how did that happen? Well, I got married to this guy. <laughs> There's always one of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
he was, uh, he had a very interesting career. He was the um, literary agent for Bernstein and Woodward and John Dean and all the Watergate characters during the Watergate era. And I was lucky enough to, at that time, meet, you know, obviously many of his clients, one of whom, obviously Bernstein and Woodward, and he and I met at the exact same time that Nora Ephron met Carl Bernstein. And Nora became my mentor. Uh And she was my mentor ever since. We did Sleepless, and many years later, we Mm -hmm. together Mm -hmm. and her directing debut together. And we were pregnant together. And (laughs) she became one of the biggest, maybe the biggest influence in my life. Yeah, that's that's a lot of bonding influences there. <laughs> yeah, she's the, she's probably the biggest influence in my life. So when um, when I met David, he was with all these extraordinary journalists, and I was in graduate school at Columbia, studying philosophy, studying philosophy, having a very good time, except for the thing about philosophy is that the most brilliant people that you ever met are sort of vaguely, they're called bright, right? (laughs) Like, if you did the most amazing thing ever, that was bright, you know, that was good. It it seemed really to be a hard field for an ambitious person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Any kind of dent in. and I had a great teacher named Sidney Morgan Besser, who made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> like, really, I didn't know what he was saying. He, he adored me, but I was like, what is he talking about? So finally, during this period, I remember going to my um, thesis, advisor, thesis advisor and saying, you know, I'm not sure if I'm cut out for this. He said, oh, no, you are, Linda. This is perfect for you. I said, no, really, I don't understand a thing that Professor Morgan Besser is saying to me. He said, Linda, if <laughs> Professor Morgan Besser knew what he was saying, he would have written it down 30 years ago. He <laughs> 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 was, like, famously convoluted. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But... During this time, while I was, I start, I was writing about philosophy of science. That's what I got hooked on. And as you may have noticed in my work, I'm <laughs> yeah. a science nerd. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started to get really interested in philosophy of physics hmm. and mm-hmm. philosophy of science. And I made some very good friends in working in that area then, which was starting to get juicy. Mm-hmm. And, um, but just around then, I fell under Nora's wing. And Nora was really not about to have me in graduate school. (laughs) (laughs) She had big plans for you. She did. She was like, you're a magazine editor. And she decided I was a magazine editor. (laughs) By the way, she says the story isn't true. So it's an apocryphal story that I actually believe is true, but she's smarter than I am, so she may be right. But she gave me a story of hers to edit when we met during a um, volleyball game that our fiancés, our husbands, were playing in Washington. And it's impossible to edit Nora's copy. It's perfect. Uh, Okay, mm -hmm. seriously. Every word, read Nora's copy. Every word is perfect in place. She never has an extra word. There's not a piece of punctuation. I mean, it's ridiculous. (laughs) I handed it back to her and I said, this is perfect. And she (laughs) said, you're a magazine editor. <laughs> uh, there are lots of ways to read that story, but yeah. <laughs> That's why she told me it's not true. Yeah. But anyway, she, she, there was a job, um, she inter- got me an interview at Esquire, 
And then there was a job that opened at the Times Magazine. Mm-hmm. And my ex-husband got me an interview there. And then Nora called the guy up and said, she's so bossy. You mm-hmm. kind of had to do what she told you to do. Right? <laughs> and the one always did, which is how we knew she was a director, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so she said to this guy, you know, you have to hire Linda. And she wrote a piece for me for the New York Times Magazine. My first piece was by Nora Ephron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I got a job as an editor at the magazine, which was pretty great. It's a great magazine. I had fun. Mm-hmm. I, I had a great time. I got to do things like get Taylor Branch to write about his philosophy convention. Do you know those academic conventions that are so much fun and so crazy? Mm-hmm. And he wrote about that. And, and I edited um, Glenn Gould. Mm-hmm. You know, the great musician. Yeah. I, I had a lot of a lot of fun there. And then I got pregnant and and my ex-husband said to me, guess what? We're moving to California. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. yep. This was before telecommuting was a thing. <laughs> you know, we'd only known yeah, about yeah. the coronavirus. Back <laughs> 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 then I could have stayed there. Well, there was a there was a reason why. Tell, tell us about this this move to California and and how did you transition into film industry? Well, I really didn't want to go. I was very happy at the Times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could have stayed there forever. I wanted to be the first woman national editor. I it was the first time I ever sort of announced an ambition to myself. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, I was fiercely ambitious. I. I loved it there. I mm-hmm. mean, it was heavenly world. But I had just, I had a baby. And um, and David said to me, go get a house in California. If I hadn't had the baby, I would have stayed in New York. And we probably would have broken up then. Yeah. But my baby was not even a year old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I had to move mm-hmm. and, uh, I had no interest in being in the movie business. This had never occurred to me. I had done some stories about the movie business when I was at the times, mm-hmm. but I was much more an academic yeah. than I was a movie person. I never studied any movies, so I wasn't even an academic about movies. <laughs> I had never studied Kurosawa. Do you know what I mean? There are yeah. huge absences in my education about movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, when people are watching really brilliant movies, I'm reading the New York Review of Books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still kind of an East Coaster, do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, here I was with a husband and a baby and I had to learn how to do a job, new job. And it was hilarious. I wrote about this in my first book, but there I was in this office that was so ridiculous looking. It had a desk with an organdy um, uh, skirt in leopard, leopard (laughs) skirt. It was for Casablanca. Mm-mm. Seriously, <laughs> seriously, I'm I'm telling you, okay. Organdy leopard, and then it had a logo on the paper that said Casablanca, that ran three quarters down the page. So you didn't even start writing, dear so and so, until you were in the last third of the page. It, I couldn't write on the page. I couldn't write to my writers. It was too embarrassing. So I had to write on the second page. Yeah. So it was like a cover sheet. It was, yeah. It was the most ridiculous place. It was where Donna Summer had made Bad Girl. Do you know the Bad Girl? And we worked in the Bad Girl Motel. I'm now starting to disco dance. Just remember that. You're missing out. The, our listeners are missing yeah. out. <laughs> this is my first job in the movie business. 
where Peter Guber said to me, if you want to do books, do books. If you want to do movies, do movies. If you want to do magazines, do magazines. And what he really meant was, please bring me water into meetings. <laughs> and, and read the scripts I have to pretend to talk about in the meetings. Yeah. And, you know, mm -hmm. write me a paragraph about what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and over the course of those three or four years, the first two of which I had no idea what I was supposed to do, despair. Everyone who has first two, and they, oh, they told me I could make up any title I wanted. Okay, this is coming from New York Times, yeah, right? You don't, you don't do that yeah. there. Can you imagine coming from the New York Times? And they're like, make up a title. No. <laughs> Give me a title. No, make one up. <laughs> Director of Creative Affairs. Which there you go. Hey, might as well go for it. Literally, there was nothing funnier. My friends just thought Director of Creative Affairs. Says, Why don't you become a vice president? I said, How can I be a vice president? I've never done the job. What do you care? I mean, that's how much titles meant. Do you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. couldn't believe I didn't want to be a vice president. <laughs> no? From the get-go, why not? Really, everything felt so fraudulent that I was in a depression, you know, for the first year. I had come from a place that was all about merit, where there was ethics, like you had to take, you had to pick up the check. Because if you didn't pick up the check at the times, you know, you could be used by, you know, you could be bought by people. Here, it was like, you wanted to be bought. <laughs> Everything was opposite. Where, the, the, of course, the uh, title of my first book came from, Hello, He Yeah, I, I love that title, um, Hello, He Lied. It was I, said about the executive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's this wonderfully witty title, but behind it, there's this view of... of this sort of dysfunctional, institutionalized insincerity that that's kind of scary. Is that was that really what it was like? And how did you how did you survive in a place like that? Given given where you came from and and your <laughs> that's why I started writing hmm. because mm -hmm. you hit the nail on the head. It was so cynically dishonest compared to coming from the times that I felt like I had the bends. And I felt like it was going to change who I was at the core. And I didn't know if I could do anything good that way. So I thought that I met this guy named Harold Hayes, who had come from Esquire and was then the editor of the Los Angeles magazine. And he asked me if I wanted to write something because I was making him laugh about Hollywood. I was telling him about how we all distributed water at meetings. <laughs> So I wrote this article about um, pitching. It was the first thing I ever wrote. And in writing, I started to develop this distance, this like anthropological distance from what was going on that really made me laugh. I used footnotes. A scholar of Hollywood dis dishonesty. I, I had footnotes. I had, you know, I had wardrobe. You know, and all of this really protected me. Yeah. It really made me laugh. So mm -hmm. writing that book, I think, saved and starting to write those articles gave me, first of all, a very unique identity. But that's not I wasn't aware of that. What I was aware of is that it gave me a distance from which I could work. And I was working out my ethics. Yeah. And see in Hello, He Lied that what I was doing was coming up with a way to work from someplace clean because your source has to stay clean or you're just chasing everybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I think that's how I've continued to do good work all these years. I mean, not everything is fantastic, but everything has stayed mm -hmm. a pretty high level and it's because I don't chase. Do you know, mm -hmm. I try to keep my source pure so that I'm, I'm working from what I truly care about. And the only way you can do that is to know what you truly care about. Yeah. And that, so that I think is the greatest, the easiest thing to violate here, which is to become a cloner mm -hmm. and a chaser. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of those. And so that was my goal, was in writing Hello, Eli, was to find out how to keep who I was intact. Yeah, how to and hang on your integrity. Saved my ass, yeah. And writing saved, you know, I think being a writer saved my ass. Yeah. Linda, the first uh, big film on your resume is Flashdance. Can you tell us a bit about your work and that movie? Yes. I um, was working for Peter Goober at the Bad Girls Motel. And I met this guy named Tom Headley, who used to work at Esquire. So we were so happy to find each other. It was the first six months of my being in Hollywood. It was the first six months of his being in Hollywood. He wanted to be a screenwriter. And both of us were like lost children in cuckoo land. (laughs) So we were always having drinks together and talking about who was lying to us about what and who was saying what and who was hustling whom. And he was very elegant. He was from Toronto. He was very elegant, Tom Edley. And he said, I actually have the best idea. And he told me about these girls who danced who, who were welders during the day. But at night, they, they b- made their own costumes and they danced in bars to tapes that they made up for themselves. And I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I'm going to do, uh, get them, I'm gonna do an illustration of this. I'm gonna show you what I mean by the costumes Mm-hmm. that they designed for themselves. Mm-hmm. So he worked with, because he was a magazine editor, he worked with a guy who did um, stills with these girls, went back to Toronto, had the girls shot and brought them back to me. And they were fantastic looking and raw and sexy. And I got it and out of a bar. Hmm. Yeah. And I said, this is a Bob Fosse musical. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. I'm buying it. So I went to my boss, Peter Goober, and I said, this is the most, this is unbelievably commercial. We have to buy it. Didn't completely understand it, but I was there for reasons like this, to buy things like that I thought were unbelievably commercial. So we started working on the script and, um, Towards the end of the first draft, um, two things happened. I knew Deanne von Furstenberg, so I told her about it so she could tell Barry Diller about it so we could get it to Paramount. Simultaneously, Dawn Steele, who became the first woman head of a studio, later my best friend, at this point not my best friend. (laughs) Okay, are we getting that? Not my best. (laughs) My competitor. Yeah. Uh Okay. All the women were out for themselves at this time. There was only one woman at each place. She got wind (laughs) of this script, Flashdance, and she had it slipped to her (gasps) by an agent. And she was like, I have to get this for Paramount. Uh oh. oh no. So we have Deanne von Furstenberg bringing it into Barry, and we have Dawn bringing it into um, Don Simpson, in, at, who was the president of Paramount then. And all of a sudden, I like call Dawn and I'm like, do we both have this script to Paramount? And we decided we had to put our forces together. Mm. Ah. So Paramount bought it. She went off and made it with Jerry Bruckheimer. I mean, uh, Don got fired as president of the studio because he was taking way too much blow. So they fired him as president, but he became a partner of Jerry Bruckheimer's and they became the producers. I became the... I could be anything from executive producer to associate producer. So obviously at the end of the day, I became associate producer, (laughs) but everyone knew I had done it because I had been with the script for two years. So when the movie was done, Dawn called me and she said, I need you to see it. Your name is on it. I want you to be proud of it. 
and she was really nervous. And I went to see it and I completely loved it. And I burst into tears and then we started hugging and then we were best friends ever since. <laughs> and her daughter is my goddaughter. Aww. Aww. That's a cool story. From There's competitors to best friends. Yes. How often does that happen in Hollywood? <laughs> well, it was the era of girls becoming yeah. allies. And so yeah. we were among the first group. Mm-hmm. Because when there's such scarcity, it was hard for women to become allies. Yeah. yeah. So we had to recognize that we were stronger together than we were fighting for crumbs. Yeah. Um, let's jump forward to um, one of my favorite films, Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> one of everybody's favorite romantic comedies, gotta be. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell us how that movie came about. Well, Nora got the, rewrote that movie. And it was sort of a great premise that had been hanging around for a while because uh, it wasn't a great script. And they mm-hmm. gave it to Nora to rewrite and she changed it completely. She changed the Meg and she changed the Meg part to being a reporter. She changed the Bill part. She changed all the parts. She made it hilarious. She made it everything. So she completely rewrote the script and it immediately got a green light and got Tom Hanks attached. Mm-hmm. And so, because I had done Nora's directing debut, This Is My Life, she said to TriStar, I have a producer. I would like Linda to produce this. So they said, okay. <laughs> so I came on the script at the point that we were casting and prepping and searching locations. And the most exciting, apart from the fact that it, the most wonderful thing to do in the movie business is scout locations with Nora, because it's basically shopping, eating, drinking <laughs> <laughs> royales at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just can't have a better scouting day than that. Um, <laughs> Uh, the most exciting and um, uh, exciting in the bad sense thing that happened was that the young boy that was supposed to play against Tom froze and couldn't do it. Mm. So we had to recast him. Mm. Ah. So we had to switch the order in which the two sections of the movie were filmed so we could recast Tom. Mm. Tom while Meg stuff was shooting. So that was very uh, exciting. Wow, yeah. Every movie has a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess every big project has a thing. A thing. Yeah. <laughs> There's always something. <laughs> a thing, yeah. or as I like to call it, a situation. <laughs> <laughs> Several of those. <laughs> For sure. Yes. Linda, you mentioned your your interest in science um, earlier, um, and several of your films and TV projects involve science. Um, Contact, Interstellar. Um, most recently, your Nat Geo Channel um, project, The Hot Zone. Um, what what draws you to science? What was what? How how now that you have done those projects? How do you what do you see? What's your interest in bringing those to life? I guess I don't think there's anything more interesting in the world than science. I mean, look at the world we're living in right now. What's going to save us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Science is going to save us. It's the only thing that's going to save us. If we listen to the scientists, of course. Well, you know, if we don't, more of us die. <laughs> right. at, the end, at, at the end of the day, science is still going to save us. It's still it will. Science with the treatment yep. and science with the vaccine. Yep. And whoever's going to die is going to die because they didn't listen to science. But Right. Yeah. I mean, the most... To the questions that I was interested in in philosophy, right? What sorts of things are there in the universe, right? How did the universe begin? What is life made of? What, all of the deepest questions, these are now questions of physics that are yeah. answerable. Mm-hmm. And that is an astonishing time to be alive. 
And more questions can be answered now in physics than in the history of man. And so I feel grateful to be alive at a time that we can be reading week to week about things that our ancestors, you know, sat around the fire speculating about and attributed to astrology. Yeah. Um, there's just nothing more interesting. Even just the science of, of vaccines right now is unbelievably interesting. So um, I'm also, what are heroes? I mean, are heroes the guys in Revenant? I don't know, maybe. But to me, heroes are the guys who make half the amount of money of a movie executive, a starting movie executive, and work day and night and day at night and invent something that will save the population of the world. And yeah. they may lose. And they're doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I want to show what real human heroism is and what real good guys are. And also, the um, every time you invent something in science, you invent 50 things. Do you know? Yeah. Because it, that's the nature yeah. of science itself. So I'm just in love with the process, you know, with the scientific method. I'm in love with facts because we're living in a, our democracy is threatened for the very reason that fake facts are not understood. I mean, what makes something fake is not understood. So mm -hmm. we're also lucky that we have this education that we do and that we're able mm -hmm. to distinguish between nonsense and truth. And we have the resources to sort out garbage from jewels. Yeah. I think it's the most important thing we're going to do for the next, for our lifetime. Mm -hmm. Is well, speaking keep that of traditional life of separating the, the wheat from the traps, yeah, and the truth from the falsehoods, and well, pushing science forward. Speaking of both science and heroes, um, the hot zone I know was something that took up a lot of years <laughs> of your life. Um, involved with uh, a fellow alum, um, Richard Preston. One of my favorite writers. He's such um, a good writer. And I, I mean, I know there's a there's quite a story behind that. Can you tell it? <laughs> I, 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 you know, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, <laughs> oh, really? it's a yeah, long story. <laughs> uh, we got we Richard, uh, you know, put the the story was the most popular um, and and widely read magazine article of of a decade when Tina Brown first took over New Yorker and Richard, and so it was auctioned among many producers. He interviewed which producers he wanted. I won and it didn't matter. That's sort of the bottom line. <laughs> the, guy, the guy who lost stole the article, gave it to his directors, to his crew. As we were organizing our writer, our cast. We had the best writer, the best cast. And he just proceeded despite the fact that he lost, which didn't yeah. I didn't even know was legal. And well, it seems marginal, doesn't it? It's barely legal. Yeah. It turns out that you can only, if you're a magazine writer, you can only um, uh, uh, protect the sequence of the ideas, not the ideas themselves. Mm -hmm. So it was a very dicey situation. They started shooting monkeys before we were ready to start shooting actors. So Outbreak got made first. This last couple of weeks where everybody's talking about Outbreak just drives me up the wazoo. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a very big person. I'm only five foot one. <laughs> What's well, a pretty bad movie, too. And one of my weaknesses is people talking about outbreak. <laughs> it's, a, it's a touchy subject. Well, I have to tell you, even before I knew, even before I knew about Richard Preston, um, I and this story, I hated Outbreak. It was oh, it's a horrible you. movie. <laughs> In my family, you weren't allowed to see it. Yeah. <laughs> But That's you persisted. 
I, you know, nevertheless, she persisted. Nevertheless, she persisted. (laughs) And then we got it made with this wonderful network, Nat Geo, in six series. And we had a great cast. And Richard was there. And I adore him. And he says now that he... He thinks it needed to be a TV series, miniseries all along. You no, know, he would not have gotten as much science in. Yeah. Because you have to fill, you have to finish everything in the third act in a movie. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think we could have done that mm-hmm. uh, in the hot zone. Yeah. It was not as good a movie as it was a, a, a series. It was a very good series. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. Limited series, I like them. Yeah. <laughs> um, Linda, um, we're gonna ask a little bit about the Me Too movement. Um, you know, you you've been in Hollywood for a long time. Do you think it has generated any real change in Hollywood? Oh God, yes. Maybe the biggest change I've ever seen. Mm. Well, I think the move for African American. Uh, directors and material is just as big Mm -hmm. but those are the two biggest movements I've seen in Hollywood in my lifetime Mm -hmm. and they're not cosmetic like on material you are going to be seeing as much material for diverse audiences as you see for non-diverse audiences now and you cannot not have sufficient amounts of diverse writers on that. It's not like a thing that you have a couple. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Does anybody know a couple of diverse writers? Uh Uh-uh. That's not going to happen. So it's fierce. And I love that. I mean, as a person that hired Forrest Whitaker for a white movie 18 years ago, (laughs) (laughs) to see it like this is just unbelievable. So there's that. And then for women directors, I mean, I can't even find any. They're all working. So that's a permanent change. I can't put out a list without having women directors on them without going to HR. (laughs) (laughs) So that's institutionalized. That's become systemic. As far as men's behavior, Um, I mean, I think they're afraid to, uh, well, these days we have another problem. Of course, we're only touching each other on the elbow and now we don't even see each other (laughs) because we're on zoom calls. So I think before even the pandemic, of course, which will change people even, you know, going within three feet of each other, Mm -hmm. um, there was a terror on the part of men. Terror is the word that I would use uh-huh. to be accused of anything. And that changed things like ever touching someone's shoulder. Do you know the kind of what we would call the, the moderate range of stupid behavior, mm-hmm. creepy behavior as opposed to, <laughs> you know, invasively yeah. creepy behavior, which was common. The right. serial hugger and the serial huggers. <laughs> Serial crowders, people are way, way conscious of that now. It happened in a year. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as sexual harassment, oh my God. I mean, cancel culture is berserk here. So there are, you know, showrunners have been thrown off shows and have never worked again. Hmm. It's tough around here. Mm -hmm. I mean, Louis C.K. can't get arrested. Do you know what I mean? So there's nobody less powerful that's going to be trying to get away with anything. Mm -hmm. Um, If anything, I feel like it's a little bit almost too fierce in that I fear women won't get hired by men. They're so scared. Mm -hmm. So there's that reaction. So women are getting hired by women and men are getting hired by men. Do you know? Yeah. And I'd like to see it normalize again so that women and men can work together because I think then I think better work is done right. when co-ed and when men and women are more comfortable with each other. But I think it's going through a very this is a I think things are, you know, period they're they, they have periodicity, right? And mm-hmm. at this moment we're going through a serious estrangement and until and maybe after the pandemic too, that'll be a good thing. 
people will come back together in a different way. Yeah. And then maybe then we can be in co-ed groups again. But it's almost like a re-socialization. Yeah. And it's interesting that the pandemic is at the tail end of this crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because it's retraining us physically anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. So Linda, I think the, there's going to be... Yeah, Linda, Richard Preston um, has said that he wanted you for the hot zone because he wanted a warrior. Um, do you consider yourself a warrior? Yeah. I'm short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a short warrior. I am I'm a I'm an astrologically an Aries that's supposed to be a warrior sign. But yeah, I think I um I'm indefatigable. And I'm not scared. I don't get scared. And I'm strategic. And um so I, I like to be a wise warrior. Do you know when you get older, you don't just sort of <laughs> you don't flail with your arms. Yeah. You like to look at a chessboard maybe a little more strategically and see mm-hmm. how you get things done as a warrior. Do you know? I think there are older warriors and middle-aged warriors and young warriors, but I do believe that at each of those stages. I was an age-appropriate <laughs> warrior. <laughs> Linda, how are you um, as a moviegoer, as a, as a professional in the industry? How would you describe yourself as a moviegoer? You know, there's certain movies. I, I'm going to see a movie. I see it the first weekend. If I want to see a movie, do you know if it's like a Coen Brothers movie? Or there are certain movies that I'm just going to see that first weekend. The mm-hmm. favorite I saw the first week. You know, there are certain movies that I just know I want to see. Um, big sci-fi, I'm going to go to the first weekend. But I have gotten a little bit lazier in terms of, you know, we get spoiled. Mm-hmm. We get all the screeners and... Um, so I have to really be a fan of the filmmaker to, to go to that movie. And then I'll go right away. Hmm. No, I'll go to Chris Nolan's movie the first weekend. Um, I'll probably go to Adam McKay's movie the first weekend. You know, I saw, I saw Parasite, Parasite the minute it came out. And I love <laughs> And then I saw it three times. Mm-hmm. Wow. What makes I you see it more than once? I've seen that movie. Because <laughs> it was so just full of turns, you know? And also, we I'm lucky, too, because we get screenings of the big movies early. Right. So I, mm-hmm. I'll know what the buzz is from Cannes, and I'll go to that one. Like Parasite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... Well, on that note, I'm unfortunately we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, this has been fun. We've been talking with noted film producer Linda Opes, class of 72. Thank you. Linda, thank you. That was so much fun. Thank you, guys, to all, to all of my SageHand friends. <laughs> and to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe, and until next time. <laughs>